Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 336 of Forgotten Classics, where we've got a couple of short stories, and they're pretty short stories, as you can see from the length of the overall episode, but they're choice, as I like to say. First, though, I have no podcast highlight, but what I do have is a movie that we all finished watching and said, why has no one ever told us about this movie, this little gem? It's called The Night Train to Munich. It is from 1939, and it's British. So the interesting thing to keep in mind when you watch this is it was being made before the British were at war with Germany. It aired in 1940. The basic plot, let me just read you. When the Germans march into Prague, armor-plating inventor Dr. Bomash flees to England. His daughter Anna, who is gorgeous, by the way, what a shock, escapes from arrest to join him. But the Gestapo managed to kidnap them both back to Berlin. As war looms, British Secret Service agent Gus Bennett follows disguised as a senior German army officer. His ploy not an unpleasant one, is pretending to woo Anna to the German cause. The thing that makes this so great is not only is it a very good spy story, suspense, thriller, with a couple of twists that we just did not see coming. And you don't expect that in these older movies, you know. But it's got this really witty dialogue. It's got this romantic hero who's very detached and narcissistic, and that's played upon a lot. And it's got these two bird-brained Englishmen who are friends who are traveling in Germany and trying to get back to England. And they are so funny. Not only do they provide some comic relief, but they also drive the plot in kind of unexpected ways. Now, there's a lot more humor in it than you would expect, but it's very low-key humor. It's in the dialogue, it's in people's reactions, and quite a bit of it is these continual subtle jabs at the Germans. So unlike some movies where they're just hammering on the Nazis, because of the time period this was made, I think they were being a lot more subtle in the way they poked fun at them. We just loved it, as I said, and about halfway through I was going, this thing is amazing. Why has no one ever talked about it before? It gets compared a lot to The Lady Vanishes, which is a Hitchcock movie that I think was made right before then. I would say I like The Lady Vanishes, but I enjoyed this much more. And we rented it. Actually, my daughter Rose rented it because she wanted to see what some of Carol Reed, who's the director's what some of his other movies were. He's known for The Third Man, which is a very suspenseful thriller from later on starring Orson Welles. And we'd seen that. This showed the same director's touch, but it was just different. And it turns out it's due to the screenwriting team who wrote a lot of comedies and thrillers. And one of them really liked comedy and the other really liked action and thrillers. And so they kind of came together in this wonderful blend of both. Anyway, The Night Train to Munich, definitely look for it. It's out in a Criterion Collection copy, so we were able to get it from Netflix, I think. Yeah, so you should be able to get it there if you have a DVD subscription anyway. So that is your little pick for the week. 
Now, what I've got for you are also two lesser known stories that I think are so delightful that I just had to share them. One of them is called The Ghost of Dr. Harris by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The other is My Own True Ghost Story by Rudyard Kipling. And aside from the obvious fact that they are both ghost stories, both of these are true ghost stories told by the authors. Absolutely true. Nathaniel Hawthorne's did not get discovered until he died, I believe, and it was in a scrap of writings that he'd just written down in a journal or, you know, with some other stories he never finished. And Kipling's, of course, was published. But I think, aside from the interesting fact that both these guys have their own ghost stories to talk about, is the attitude of the authors. You know, Kipling's a journalist. He wants to believe. He wants to get it written down. He's going to report it. He's also giving us his personal reaction, so that's good. And then Hawthorne is, it's really funny, watch and see the things that he's worried about and the things he's interested in. His actually seems much more real to me just because of the fact that he's reacting in ways that no one, including himself, could have predicted. So I hope you enjoy these. I really love them. And so I am glad to be able to say, let's dive in to some true ghost stories. The Ghost of Dr. Harris by Nathaniel Hawthorne I am afraid this ghost story will be a very faded aspect when transferred to paper. Whatever effect is had on you, or whatever charm it retains in your memory, is perhaps to be attributed to the favorable circumstances under which it was originally told. We were sitting, I remember, late in the evening, in your drawing-room, where the lights of the chandelier were so muffled as to produce a delicious obscurity, through which the fire diffused a dim red glow. In this rich twilight the feelings of the party had been properly attuned by some tales of English superstition, and the lady of Smith Hills Hall had just been describing that bloody footstep which marks the threshold of her old mansion when your Yankee guest, zealous for the honor of his country, and desirous of proving that his dead compatriots have the same ghostly privileges as other dead people, if they think it worthwhile to use them, have been in a story of something wonderful that long ago happened to himself. Possibly in the verbal narrative, he may have assumed a little more license than would be allowable in a written record. For the sake of the artistic effort, he may then have thrown in here and there a few slight circumstances which he will not think it proper to retain in what he now puts forth as the sober statement of a veritable fact. A good many years ago, it must be as many as fifteen, perhaps more, and while I was still a bachelor, I resided at Boston in the United States. In that city there is a large and long-established library, styled the Athenium, connected with which is a reading room, well supplied with foreign and American periodicals and newspapers. A splendid edifice has since been erected by the proprietors of the institution, but at the period I speak of, it was contained within a large old mansion, 
formerly the town residence of an eminent citizen of Boston. The reading room, a spacious hall with the group of the Laocoon at one end and the Belvedere Apollo at the other, was frequented by not a few elderly merchants retired from business, by clergymen and lawyers, and by such literary men as we had among us. These good people were mostly old, leisurely, and somnolent, and used to nod and doze for hours together with the newspapers before them, ever and anon recovering themselves as far as to read a word or two of the politics of the day, sitting, as it were, on the boundary of the land of dreams, and having little to do with this world except through the newspapers which they so tenaciously grasped. One of these worthies, whom I occasionally saw there, was the Reverend Dr. Harris, a Unitarian clergyman of considerable repute and eminence. He was very far advanced in life, not less than eighty years old, and probably more, and he resided, I think, at the Dorchester, a suburban village in the immediate vicinity of Boston. I had never been personally acquainted with this good old clergyman, but had heard of him all my life as a noteworthy man, so that when he was first pointed out to me, I looked at him with a certain specialty of attention, and always subsequently eyed him with a degree of interest whenever I happened to see him at the Athenaeum or elsewhere. He was a small, withered, infirm, but brisk old gentleman with snow-white hair, a somewhat stooping figure, but yet a remarkable alacrity of movement. I remember it was in the street that I first noticed him. The doctor was plodding along with the staff, but turned smartly about on being addressed by the gentleman who was with me, and responded with a good deal of vivacity. "'Who is he?' I inquired as soon as he had passed. "'The Reverend Dr. Harris of Dorchester,' replied my companion." and from that time I often saw him and never forgot his aspect. His special haunt was the Athenaeum. There I used to see him daily, and almost always with a newspaper, the Boston Post, which was the leading journal of the Democratic Party in the northern states. As old Dr. Harris had been a noted Democrat during his more active life, it was a very natural thing that he should still like to read the Boston Post. There his reverend figure was accustomed to sit day after day in the self-same chair by the fireside, and by degrees, seeing him there so constantly, I began to look towards him as I entered the reading-room, and felt that a kind of acquaintance, at least on my part, was established. Not that I had any reason, as long as this venerable person remained in the body, to suppose that he ever noticed me— but by some subtle connection, that small, white-haired, infirm, yet vivacious figure of an old clergyman became associated with my idea and recollection of the place. One day specially, about noon, as this was generally his hour, I am perfectly certain that I had seen this figure of old Dr. Harris, and had taken my customary note of him, although I remember nothing in his appearance at all different from what I had seen on many previous occasions. But that very evening a friend said to me, Did you hear that old Dr. Harris is dead? No, I said very quietly, and it cannot be true, for I saw him at the Athenaeum today. You must be mistaken, rejoined my friend. He is certainly dead, and confirmed the fact with such special circumstances that I could no longer doubt it. 
My friend has often since assured me that I seemed much startled at the intelligence, but as well as I can recollect, I believe that I was very little disturbed, if at all, but set down the apparition as a mistake of my own, or perhaps the interposition of a familiar idea into the place and amid the circumstances with which I had been accustomed to associate it. The next day, as I descended the steps of the Athenium, I remember thinking within myself, "'Well, I shall never see old Dr. Harris again.' With this thought in my mind, as I opened the door of the reading-room, I glanced toward the spot and chair where Dr. Harris usually sat, and there, to my astonishment, sat the gray, infirm figure of the deceased doctor reading the newspaper, as was his wont.' His own death must have been recorded that very morning in that very newspaper. I have no recollection of being greatly discomposed at the moment, or indeed that I felt any extraordinary emotion whatever. Probably if ghosts were in the habit of coming among us, they would coincide with the ordinary train of thoughts, and melt into them so familiarly that we should not be shocked at their appearance. At all events, so it was in this instance." I looked through the newspapers as usual and turned over the periodicals, taking about as much interest in their contents as at other times. Once or twice, no doubt, I may have lifted my eyes from the page to look again at the venerable doctor, who ought then to have been lying in his coffin dressed out for the grave, but who felt such interest in the Boston Post as to come back from the other world to read it the morning after his death. One might have supposed that he would have cared more about the novelties of the sphere to which he had just been introduced than about the politics he had left behind him. The apparition took no notice of me nor behaved otherwise in any respect than on any previous day. Nobody but myself seemed to notice him, and yet the old gentleman round about the fire, beside his chair were his lifelong acquaintances, who were perhaps thinking of his death, and who, in a day or two, would deem it a proper courtesy to attend his funeral. I have forgotten how the ghost of Dr. Harris took its departure from the Athenium on this occasion, or, in fact, whether the ghost or I went first. This equanimity, and almost indifference on my part, the careless way in which I glanced at so singular a mystery and left it aside, is what now surprises me as much as anything else in the affair. From that time, for a long time thereafter, for weeks at least, and I know not, but for months, I used to see the figure of Dr. Harris quite as frequently as before his death. It grew to be so common that at length I regarded the venerable defunct no more than any other of the old fogies who basked before the fire and dozed over the newspapers. It was but a ghost, nothing but thin air, not tangible, nor appreciable, nor demanding any attention from a man of flesh and blood. I cannot recollect any cold shudderings, any awe, any repugnance, any emotion whatever, such as would be suitable and decorous on beholding a visitant from the spiritual world. It is very strange, but such is the truth. It appears excessively odd to me now that I did not adopt such means as I readily might to ascertain whether the appearance had solid substance or was merely gaseous and vapory. I might have brushed against him, have jostled his chair, or have trodden accidentally on his poor old toes. I might have snatched the Boston Post. 
unless that were an apparition too, out of his shadowy hands. I might have tested him in a hundred ways, but I did nothing of the kind. Perhaps I was loath to destroy the illusion, and to rob myself of so good a ghost story which might probably have been explained in some very commonplace way. Perhaps, after all, I had a secret dread of the old phenomenon, and therefore kept within my limits with an instinctive caution which I mistook for indifference. Be this as it may, here is the fact— I saw the figure day after day for a considerable space of time and took no pains to ascertain whether it was a ghost or no. I never, to my knowledge, saw him come into the reading room or depart from it. There sat Dr. Harris in his customary chair, and I can say little else about him. After a certain period, I really know not how long, I began to notice or to fancy, a peculiar regard in the old gentleman's aspect toward myself. I sometimes found him gazing at me, and unless I deceived myself, there was a sort of expectancy in his face. His spectacles, I think, were shoved up, so that his bleared eyes might meet my own. Had he been a living man, I should have flattered myself that good Dr. Harris was, for some reason or other, interested in me, and desirous of a personal acquaintance. Being a ghost, and amenable to ghostly laws, it was natural to conclude that he was waiting to be spoken to before delivering whatever message he wished to impart. But if so, the ghost had shown the bad judgment common among the spiritual brotherhood, both as regarded the place of interview and the person whom he had selected as the recipient of his communications. In the reading-room of the Athenium, conversation is strictly forbidden, and I could not have addressed the apparition without drawing instant notice and indignant frowns of the slumberous old gentleman around me. I myself, too, at that time was as shy as any ghost, and followed the ghost's rule never to speak first. And what an absurd figure I should have made, solemnly and awfully addressing what must have appeared in the eyes of all the rest of the company— an empty chair. Besides, I had never been introduced to Dr. Harris, dead or alive, and I am not aware that social regulations are to be abrogated by the accidental fact of one of the parties having crossed the imperceptible line which separates the other party from the spiritual world. If ghosts throw off all conventionalism among themselves, it does not therefore follow that it can be safely dispensed with by those who are still hampered with flesh and blood. For such reasons as these, and reflecting, moreover, that the deceased doctor might burden me with some disagreeable task, with which I had no business nor wish to be concerned, I stubbornly resolved to have nothing to say to him. To this determination I adhered, and not a syllable ever passed between the ghost of Dr. Harris and myself. To the best of my recollection, I never observed the old gentleman either enter the reading room or depart from it, or move from his chair, or lay down the newspaper, or exchange a look with any person in the company, unless it were myself. He was not by any means invariably in his place— in the evening, for instance, though often at the reading-room myself, I never saw him. It was at the brightest noontide that I used to behold him, sitting within the most comfortable focus of the glowing fire, as real and lifelike an object, 
except that he was so very old and of an ashen complexion, as any other in the room. After a long while of this strange intercourse, if such it can be called, I remember once at least, and I know not but oftener, a sad, wistful, disappointed gaze which the ghost fixed upon me from beneath his spectacles, a melancholy look of helplessness, which if my heart had not been as hard as a paving stone, I could hardly have withstood. But I did withstand it, and I think I saw him no more after this last appealing look, which still dwells in my memory as perfectly as while my own eyes were encountering the dim and bleared eyes of the ghost. And whenever I recall this strange passage of my life, I see the small, old, withered figure of Dr. Harris, sitting in his accustomed chair, the Boston Post in his hand, his spectacles shoved upwards, and gazing at me as I closed the door of the reading room with that wistful, appealing, hopeless, helpless look. It is too late now. His grave has been grass-grown this many and many a year, and I hope he has found rest in it without aid from me. I have only to add that it was not until long after I had ceased to encounter the ghost that I became aware of how very odd and strange the whole affair had been, and even now I am made sensible of its strangeness, chiefly by the wonder and incredulity of those to whom I tell the story. My Own True Ghost Story by Rudyard Kipling As I came through the desert, thus it was, as I came through the desert, the city of dreadful night. Somewhere in the other world, where there are books and pictures and plays and shop windows to look at, and thousands of men who spend their lives in building up all four, lives a gentleman who writes real stories about the real insides of people, and his name is Mr. Walter Besant. But he will insist upon treating his ghosts, he has published half a workshop full of them, with levity. He makes his ghost seers talk familiarly, and in some cases flirt outrageously with the phantoms. You may treat anything from a viceroy to a vernacular paper with levity but you must behave reverently toward a ghost, and particularly an Indian one. There are in this land ghosts who take the form of fat, cold, pobby corpses and hide in trees near the roadside till a traveler passes. Then they drop upon his neck and remain. There are also terrible ghosts of women who have died in childbed. These wander along pathways at dusk, or hide in the crops near a village and call seductively. But to answer their call is death in this world and the next. Their feet are turned backward, that all sober men may recognize them. There are ghosts of little children who have been thrown into wells. These haunt the well curbs and the fringes of jungles, and wail under the stairs, or catch women by the wrist and beg to be taken up and carried. These and the corpse ghosts, however, are only vernacular articles and do not attack sahibs. No native ghost has yet been authentically reported to have frightened an Englishman, but many English ghosts have scared the life out of both white and black. Nearly every other station owns a ghost. There are said to be two at Simla, not counting the woman who blows the bellows at Siri Dak Bungalow on the old road, 
Musori has a house haunted of a very lively thing. A white lady is supposed to do night watchmen round a house in Lahore. Dalhousie says that one of her houses repeats on autumn evenings all the incidents of a horrible horse and precipice accident. Marie has a merry ghost, and now that she has been swept by cholera, will have room for a sorrowful one. There are officers' quarters in Myanmar whose doors open without reason, and whose furniture is guaranteed to creak, not with the heat of June, but with the weight of invisibles who come to lounge in the chairs. Peshawar possesses houses that none will willingly rent, and there is something, not fever, wrong with a big bungalow in Allahabad. The older provinces simply bristle with haunted houses and march phantom armies along their main thoroughfares. Some of the Dak bungalows on the Grand Trunk Road have handy little cemeteries in their compound, witnesses to the changes and chances of this mortal life in the days when men drove from Calcutta to the northwest. These bungalows are objectionable places to put up in. They are generally old, always dirty, while the Kansama is as ancient as the bungalow. He either chatters senilely or falls into the long trances of age. In both moods, he is useless. If you get angry with him, he refers to some sahib dead and buried these thirty years, and says that when he was in that sahib's service, not a kansama in the province could touch him. Then he jabbers and mouths and trembles and fidgets among the dishes, and you repent of your irritation. In these dak bungalows, ghosts are most likely to be found, and when found, they should be made a note of. Not long ago, it was my business to live in dak bungalows. I never inhabited the same house for three nights running, and grew to be learned in the breed. I lived in government-built ones with red brick walls and rail ceilings, an inventory of the furniture posted in every room, and an excited snake at the threshold to give welcome. I lived in converted ones, old houses officiating as dak bungalows, where nothing was in its proper place and there wasn't even a fowl for dinner. I lived in second-hand palaces where the wind blew through open-work marble tracery just as uncomfortably as through a broken pane. I lived in dak bungalows where the last entry in the visitor's book was 15 months old and where they slashed off the curry kid's head with a sword. It was my good luck to meet all sorts of men, from sober traveling missionaries and deserters flying from British regiments, to drunken loafers who threw whiskey bottles at all who passed, and my still greater good fortune just to escape a maternity case. Seeing that a fair portion of the tragedy of our lives out here acted itself in the dak bungalows, I wondered that I had met no ghost. A ghost that would voluntarily hang about a dak bungalow would be mad, of course, but so many men have died mad in dak bungalows that there must be a fair percentage of lunatic ghosts. In due time I found my ghost, or ghosts, rather, for there were two of them. Up till that hour I had sympathized with Mr. Besant's method of handling them, as shown in The Strange Case of Mr. Lucraft and Other Stories. I am now in The Opposition. We will call the bungalow Katmal Dak Bungalow, but that was the smallest part of the horror. A man with a sensitive hide has no right to sleep in Dak Bungalows. He should marry. Katmal Dak Bungalow was old and rotten and unrepaired. 
The floor was of worn brick, the walls were filthy, and the windows were nearly black with grime. It stood on a bypath largely used by native sub-deputy assistants of all kinds, from finance to forests, but real sahibs were rare. The Kansama, who was nearly bent double with age, said so. When I arrived, there was a fitful, undecided rain on the face of the land, accompanied by a restless wind, and every gust made a noise like the rattling of dry bones in the stiff, toddy palms outside. The Kansama completely lost his head on my arrival. He had served a sahib once. Did I know that sahib? He gave me the name of a well-known man who has been buried for more than a quarter of a century and showed me an ancient daguerreotype of that man in his prehistoric youth. I had seen a steel engraving of him in the head of a double volume of memoirs a month before, and I felt ancient beyond telling. The day shut in, and the Kansama went to get me food. He did not go through the pretense of calling it Kana, man's victuals. He said Ratub, and that means, among other things, grub, dog's rations. There was no insult in his choice of the term. He had forgotten the other word, I suppose. While he was cutting up the dead bodies of animals, I settled myself down after exploring the deck bungalow. There were three rooms beside my own, which was a corner kennel, each giving into the other through dingy white doors fastened with long iron bars. The bungalow was a very solid one, but the partition walls of the rooms were almost jerry-built in their flimsiness. Every step or bang of a trunk echoed from my room down the other three, and every footfall came back tremulously from the far walls. For this reason, I shut the door. There were no lamps, only candles in long glass shades. An oil wick was set in the bathroom. For bleak, unadulterated misery, that dak bungalow was the worst of the many I had ever set foot in. There was no fireplace, and the windows would not open, so a brazier of charcoal would have been useless. The rain and the wind splashed and gurgled and moaned round the house, and the toddy palms rattled and roared. Half a dozen jackals went through the compound singing, and a hyena stood afar off and mocked them. A hyena would convince a Sadducee of the resurrection of the dead, the worst sort of dead. Then came the ratub, a curious meal, half native and half English in composition, with the old Kansama babbling behind my chair about dead and gone English people, and the wind-blown candles playing shadow-bo-peep with the bed and the mosquito curtains. It was just the sort of dinner and evening to make a man think of every single one of his past sins, and of all the others that he intended to commit if he lived. Sleep, for several hundred reasons, was not easy. The lamp in the bathroom threw the most absurd shadows into the room, and the wind was beginning to talk nonsense. Just when the reasons were drowsy with blood-sucking, I heard the regular, Let us take and heave him over grunt of dooley bearers in the compound. First one dooley came in, then a second, and then a third. I heard the dooleys dumped on the ground, and the shutter in front of my door shook. That's someone trying to come in, I said. But no one spoke, and I persuaded myself that it was the gusty wind. The shutter of the room next to mine was attacked, flung back, and the inner door opened. That's some sub-deputy assistant, 
I said, and he has brought his friends with him. Now they'll talk and spit and smoke for an hour. But there were no voices and no footsteps. No one was putting his luggage into the next room. The door shut, and I thanked Providence that I was to be left in peace. But I was curious to know where the Dooleys had gone. I got out of bed and looked into the darkness. There was never a sign of a Dooley. Just as I was getting into bed again, I heard in the next room the sound that no man in his senses can possibly mistake. The whir of a billiard ball down the length of the slates when the striker is stringing for a break. No other sound is like it. A minute afterwards, there was another whir, and I got into bed. I was not frightened. Indeed, I was not. I was very curious to know what had become of the Dooleys. I jumped into bed for that reason. Next minute, I heard the double click of a cannon, and my hair sat up. It is a mistake to say that hair stands up. The skin of the head tightens, and you can feel a faint prickly bristling all over the scalp. That is the hair sitting up. There was a whir and a click, and both sounds could only have been made by one thing, a billiard ball. I argued the matter out at great length with myself, and the more I argued, the less probable it seemed that one bed, one table, and two chairs, all the furniture of the room next to mine, could so exactly duplicate the sounds of a game of billiards. After another cannon, a three-cushion one, to judge by the whir, I argued no more. I had found my ghosts, and would have given worlds to have escaped from that deck bungalow. I listened, and with each listen the game grew clearer. There was whir on whir and click on click. Sometimes there was a double click and a whir and another click. Beyond any sort of doubt, people were playing billiards in the next room. And the next room was not big enough to hold a billiard table. Between the pauses of wind, I heard the game go forward, stroke after stroke. I tried to believe that I could not hear voices, but that attempt was a failure. Do you know what fear is? Not ordinary fear of insult, injury, or death, but abject, quivering dread of something that you cannot see, fear that dries the inside of the mouth and half of the throat, fear that makes you sweat on the palms of the hands and gulp in order to keep the uvula at work. This is a fine fear, a great cowardice, and must be felt to be appreciated. The very improbability of billiards in a dak bungalow proved the reality of the thing. No man, drunk or sober, could imagine a game at billiards or invent the spitting crack of a screw cannon. A severe course of dak bungalows has this disadvantage. It breeds infinite credulity. If a man said to be a confirmed dak bungalow hunter, There's a corpse in the next room, and there's a mad girl in the next but one, and the woman and the man on that camel have just eloped from a place sixty miles away. The hearer would not disbelieve, because he would know that nothing is too wild, grotesque, or horrible to happen in a dak bungalow. Hmm, this credulity, unfortunately, extends to ghosts. A rational person fresh from his own house would have turned on his side and slept. 
I did not. So surely as I was given up as a bad carcass by the scores of things in the bed because the bulk of my blood was in my heart, so surely did I hear every stroke of a long game at billiards played in the echoing room behind the iron-barred door. My dominant fear was that the players might want a marker. It was an absurd fear, because creatures who could play in the dark would be above such superfluities. I only know that that was my terror, and it was real. After a long, long time, the game stopped and the door banged. I slept because I was dead tired. Otherwise, I should have preferred to have kept awake. Not for everything in Asia would I have dropped the door bar and peered into the dark of the next room. When the morning came, I considered that I had done well and wisely, and inquired for the means of departure. By the way, Kansama, I said, what were those three doolies doing in my compound in the night? There were no doolies, said the Kansama. I went into the next room, and the daylight streamed through the open door. I was immensely brave. I would, at that hour, have played Blackpool with the owner of the big Blackpool down below. Has this place always been a dak bungalow? I asked. No, said the Kansama. Ten or twenty years ago, I have forgotten how long it was a billiard room. Uh, how much? A billiard room for the sahibs who built the railway. I was Kansama then in the big house where all the railway sahibs lived, and I used to come across the brandy shrub. These three rooms were all one, and they held a big table on which the sahibs played every evening. But the sahibs are all dead now, and the railway runs, you say, nearly to Kabul. Do you remember anything about the sahibs? It is a long time ago, but I remember that one sahib, a fat man and always angry, was playing here one night, and he said to me, Manga Khan, Brandy Panido. And I filled the glass, and he bent over the table to strike, and his head fell lower and lower till it hit the table, and his spectacles came off. And when we, the sahibs and I myself, ran to lift him, he was dead. I helped to carry him out. <laughs> he was a strong sahib. But he is dead, and I, old Mangal Khan, am still living by your favor. That was more than enough. I had my ghost, a first-hand authenticated article. I would write to the Society for Psychical Research. I would paralyze the empire with the news. But I would, first of all, put 80 miles of assessed cropland between myself and that dak bungalow before nightfall. The society might send their regular agent to investigate later on. I went into my own room and prepared to pack after noting down the facts of the case. As I smoked, I heard the game begin again, with a miss in bulk this time, for the whir was a short one. The door was open, and I could see into the room. Click, click. That was a cannon. I entered the room without fear, for there was sunlight within and a fresh breeze without. The unseen game was going on at a tremendous rate. And well it might, when a restless little rat was running to and fro inside the dingy ceiling cloth, 
and a piece of loose window sash was making fifty breaks off the window bolt as it shook in the breeze. Impossible to mistake the sound of billiard balls. Impossible to mistake the whir of a ball over the slate. But I was to be excused. Even when I shut my enlightened eyes, the sound was marvelously like that of a fast game. Entered angrily the faithful partner of my sorrows, Kadir Baksh. This bungalow is very bad and low caste. No wonder the presence was disturbed and is speckled. Three sets of dooley bearers came to the bungalow late last night when I was sleeping outside and said it was their custom to rest in the room set apart for the English people. What honor has the Kansama? They tried to enter, but I told them to go. No wonder if these Urias have been here, that the presence is sorely spotted. It is shame and the work of a dirty man. Kadir Baksh did not say that he had taken from each gang two annas for rent in advance, and then, beyond my earshot, had beaten them with the big green umbrella, whose use I could never before divine. But Kadir Baksh has no notions of morality. There was an interview with the Kansama, but as he promptly lost his head, wrath gave place to pity, and pity led to a long conversation, in the course of which he put the fat engineer sahib's tragic death in three separate stations, two of them fifty miles away. The third shift was to Calcutta, and there the sahib died while driving a dog cart. If I had encouraged him, the Kansama would have wandered all through Bengal with his corpse. I did not go away as soon as I intended. I stayed for the night while the wind and the rat and the sash and the window bolt played ding-dong, a hundred and fifty up. Then the wind ran out, and the billiards stopped, and I felt that I had ruined my one genuine hallmarked ghost story. Had I only stopped at the proper time, I could have made anything out of it. That was the bitterest thought of all.